The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and a happy year of the ox to all those celebrating Chinese New Year. In today's episode, we discuss Indonesia's local elections and the way direct popular votes for the more than 500 mayors and governors around Indonesia have shaped local governance. The just-passed December 2020 elections for mayors and governors mark the beginning of Indonesia's fourth wave of these direct local elections, making it timely to look back and ask, what have been the keys to winning these local elections? Do the party coalitions that nominate most candidates meaningfully shape their chances of winning, or the way that they govern afterwards? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. Adrianos Hendrawan, a recent PhD graduate from the Australian National University, who is currently conducting research with ANU on women's representation in local parliaments. Adrianos, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Yes, it is a pleasure to join your weekly podcast. And it's a uh, real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And in fact, a, a, if I might say a real coup for Talking Indonesia, as listeners may not be aware that Adrianos is in fact one of Indonesia's top tennis umpires and under normal circumstances would be working at the Australian Open when we're recording this podcast. Yes, hopefully I can visit Australia again in the near future once the border is open and then the situation is uh, it's much better with this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, no, we certainly look forward to welcoming you, welcoming you back in Australia. But for today's purposes, uh, if we could turn to this question of how people get themselves elected as mayors and governors in local politics in Indonesia, could I start by asking you what, in fact, are the keys to winning an election to become mayor or governor in Indonesia? Thanks, Dave. From what I found from my research, as well as from field experience, the two most important aspects to win an election is the candidate popularity and grassroots support. I know that for most of you, these two aspects seems a bit too general, but yeah, without these two components, it is going to be very hard for any candidate to win an election. Popularity can come from the incumbency status or from the family background or from local position, for example, if you are a religious leader or an organize, a local organization leader. And the popularity is usually linked with the grassroots support. If you are popular, it is easier for you to consolidate grassroots support. Unfortunately, uh, we don't see that since 2005, which is the the introduction of direct election in Indonesia. We don't see a lot of debate around policies or programs in local elections and possibly in the national election as well. So during the campaign period, as well as the nomination period, we rarely saw high quality policy debates. So now, at least 15 years after the start of the local election, I could safely say that two, mo- two most important aspects in winning an election are 
candidate's popularity and as, as well as grassroots support for the candidate. Now, I think a uh, third possible factor that a lot of listeners might have expected you to say there would be money. Is it enough to be popular and to have grassroots support or are you going to need a great big cache of money as well to be competitive? Of course, money is important because to be able to run an effective campaign or to secure your votes, you need money, especially to train the election witnesses. Because voting in Indonesia is done manually, including the counting. So it is critical to have an election witness in its voting station to ensure that there is no fraud. But money is not always the most important factor. And sometimes money comes from popularity and grassroots support as well. Because if you are popular, it gives you more access to campaign donations, either from individual donations or from organizations or from political parties, if you are also a member of political party. As well as if you are more popular, you may need less money to collect grassroots support. So because more people will come to your campaign events, well, if you are not popular, you need to give something to, to get people to come along, like for example, attraction or food or maybe even cash. So, I mean, you know, if I were to summarize there, I guess you're saying not just anyone can buy their way to office. Popularity is a, a crucial aspect and may make it cheaper to run. But even notwithstanding that, I mean, what sort of, what would be a minimum budget to run for mayor or for governor in one of these elections? I'm not an expert on that, but from what I read is that at least you need 10 billion to run as a mayor and about 50 billion to run as a governor. So that would be about a million Australian dollars for mayor and maybe uh, $5 million for governor then, um, uh, quite a substantial sum of money. Yeah, and you know, uh, as you as you point out, your your focus in your research has not been on that financial side of things, but you know, it's been broadly identifying patterns in the way that people have got elected, in, including the sort of political parties that have supported them. Uh, because as we know, in these elections for mayor and governor at present, anyone who isn't running as an independent candidate, which is very difficult to do, needs support of political parties having twenty percent of the seats in the local legislature or 25% of votes in the preceding election. So can I ask you, I mean, how important to a candidate's prospect of winning is the precise coalition that they put together? Does it matter what parties they have in their coalition, how big it is and, and how do candidates make decisions about what sort of coalition to assemble? Let's talk about a candidate that is popular, but is not part of a certain political party. That candidate with initially has two choices. First is to run purely as an independent, or second is to try to secure party nominations. So if you, if you decide to run as an independent, that means you have to secure about 7.5% of the voter support to be able to run as an independent. 
Second, the second option, of course, is to secure party nomination. In the past five years, it becomes the norm for political parties to recruit external candidates. And usually a popular candidate submitted the application to more than one parties. And then usually the party of the choice reflects the candidate's profile. For example, if, uh, if the candidate has a strong religious background, usually he or she registers to Islamic parties. But if the candidate has a nationalist or a bit secular background, the person will apply to the more nationalist parties like Gokar, PDIP, or Gurindra. And that's the first stage. And then the second stage, if the candidate can secure a party nomination, and also the party itself has less than 20% of the local parliament seats, the challenge is now to form the coalition. And if the party already has 10% or more seats, it's usually easier because the party only needs one or two small other parties to get the number to 20%. And usually the smaller parties will nominate the running mate. But if the party has less than 10%, that it's become more complicated because if it forms coalition with a bigger party, that means the candidate has to settle to become the running mate or even if the candidate is not happy with that or cannot maintain good relationship with the party that nominates him or her, he or, or she may need, may lose the candidacy and the party may just give the slot to the party cadre. I think it's an interesting point you've raised that it's become increasingly common for political parties to look outside of their party for the candidate they're going to nominate. And of course, we often hear that these nominations involve money changing hands, that candidates have to pay often very large sums to secure the support of political parties. So, I mean, for parties themselves choosing who they're going to support, is it, is it a matter simply of giving their support to the highest bidder? Or uh, what, what sort of considerations do they make when they're choosing a candidate to support? Up to the moment, there is no credible data on this nomination prize to secure party nomination. But yeah, there has been some qualitative studies on certain regions that at least in the early phase of local elections, parties will just go to the highest bidder, especially if the party itself didn't have a strong local cadre. So in that situation, the party just chose for the short-term benefit. So they, did, they hope that the candidate won, but if the candidate was not successful, at least the party got significant amount of funds to fund their operations or to prepare for the next legislative election. But as you can see, especially in the, in the past five years, there's less and less candidates for in its election, which means that parties were more inclined to support strong candidates who had better chance of winning. One possible explanation is that the party would hope that the candidate, if elected, would do more for the parties. Could be uh, like 
projects, for example, or direct support in the legislative election. Now, I mean, that's on the, the, the question of who the parties are going to support. I mean, legislatures in Indonesia tend to be fragmented. So most parties would not have enough seats or votes to nominate a, a candidate just by themselves. They, they wouldn't have 20% of the seats or 25% of the votes. I know in your research, you've looked at the patterns of party coalitions. Do you, do you see any consistent patterns in the sort of coalitions that parties form? I mean, do they like to be in the same coalitions at local level as what we see at national level supporting President Jokowi or, or what factors determine these coalitions? This national and local coalition pattern was discussed extensively in the paper that I wrote with Professor Ed Aspino and Professor Walt Berenskot. So as described in the paper, this national and local coalition did not show strong correlation during 2005 to 2014, which is basically the pre-Joko Widodo era. But the national and local coalition became stronger in the past five years. So that parties that were part of the national coalition tend to be in the same coalition at the provincial or district level. Likewise, if you are in, a, in an opposition at the national level, you'll also like to be in the same coalition at the local level. Sure, sure. What about, I mean, do we see consistent ideological coalitions? Do we, do we tend to see Islamic parties entering into coalition together, nationalist parties together, or is it, is it quite a jumble from uh, region to region? In general, the, the, the ideolo- party ideology, either nationalist or Islamic, didn't play a big role in the coalition pattern. Now, I mean, what about that first trend that you mentioned that during this third wave of local elections that's happened while Joko Widodo has been president, we've seen more consistency with the national coalitions in the, in the coalitions that parties are forming at local level. What do you think has driven that change? During the, the first Joko Widodo's term in 2014 to 2019, we could see stronger polarization at the national and local politics. In the 2014 presidential campaign, we could, maybe we could recall that there was a coalition Merah Putih, the red and white coalition that was basically the opposition parties. And it became the majority at the national parliament. And then after losing the election, these opposition parties tried to exert the influence to the local branches of the parties. And that uh, happened straight in subsequent years, as there are like more than 200 local elections in 2015. Now, of course, we see both Prabowo and Santiago Uno, who were Joko Widodo and Maruf Amin's opponents in the 2019 election, uh, both as members of their cabinet. Is that reflected at all in these most recent 2020 elections? see a breakdown of that sort of polarization in the coalitions at local level? The 2020 local elections could not be compared with other cycles, first of all, because 
yeah, as you know that it was held uh, under the COVID-19 restrictions. There was a little campaign events compared to the previous years. And also another thing is that Jokowi Dodo's coalition was much bigger in the second term compared to the first term. At the moment, Jokowi Dodo's coalition occupy almost 80% of the national parliament seats. So this should influence the local coalition patterns because it's going to be very hard in some regions for local parties to form coalitions just among themselves because they will not be able to meet the 20% threshold. And maybe this is also the reason why the number of unopposed candidates were bigger in 2020 compared to the other years. The coalitions become so large, mirroring the the large coalition at national level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is an interesting point that you raise about the size of the national coalitions, and of course, at national level, we see those change after elections. There are more parties supporting Jokowi now than were supporting him before the 2019 election. But overall, I guess my impression is we don't see a clear link for the presidential elections between the size of a coalition nominating a presidential candidate and how many votes that presidential candidate gets. I mean, as you mentioned, Prabowo had a much larger nominating coalition in 2014 when he lost to Jokowi. And, you know, then Jokowi significantly increased the size of his nominating coalition in 2019, but his vote share didn't increase by all that much. What about at local level? How big a coalition is it typical for a candidate to form? Do they only form the smallest one they possibly can that exceeds that 20% threshold? And do we see any relationship between bigger coalition equals more votes? Or or is the relationship much more complicated than that? Based on the data, we could see strong correlation between the size of the coalition and the voting results. This means that on average, a candidate with bigger coalition tend to gain more votes or bigger chance of winning. But of course, it is not always the story. Because even until 2018, the winning candidates on average has less than 50% of the parliament seats. The number was particularly small in the first wave of local election in which the candidate, the winning candidate on average only had 30 something percent of the local parliament seats. This means that, yeah, again, as the two most important factors, having a bigger coalition is, is desirable, but then it's not a clear winning strategy while having a minimal coalition just to meet the threshold is also not desirable. So it's something in between. So in my opinion, if a candidate can secure about 30% to 40% of the local parliament seats, that should be sufficient to have a good chance of winning the, the local elections. I mean, what about for actually governing afterwards? Because we saw again, using the example of Jokowi at national level in 2014, he was able to win with a minority coalition, but with the uncertain backing even of his main political party, PDIP, he found it difficult to govern and and ended up adding 
more parties to the coalition over time. Does the size of the coalition a candidate has at local level clearly shape the way that they govern? Are there patterns that you've been able to identify there? Yes. The size of the coalition does matter in the local governance. Mayors with more than 50% support in the local parliament usually spends more, usually allocate more budget for health, which translates into better access to health services and better health outcomes compared to mayors with less than 50% support in the local parliament. Why health in particular? What are the mayors with smaller coalitions spending the money on? My research focuses on three sectors. In addition to health, we also look into the education and infrastructure sectors. We found that the, the effect on education is not significant. And when we look further into the, into the composition of education sectors, more than 90% of the education spending was already allocated for teachers' allowance, while the biggest contribution for the school operational budget basically a, a grant from central government in the form of the school operational assistant or boss. So that means uh, there is very little room for a mayor to allocate more or less budget on education. The similar situation also with the infrastructure sector, but with a different reason. The research focused on the period between 2005 and 2012. And on that year, in the infrastructure spending at the district level was particularly limited because it had been widely known that uh, that organizing or uh, managing a big infrastructure project at the district level was very complicated because of the local, uh, like limited local capacity, as well as the lengthy procurement process. And uh, there's little example of multi-year projects. So if you took about six months for the tenders process, you only had six months or less to build something. And, and in most cases, it's not sufficient to, be, uh, to build significant infrastructure projects. So which means that from time to time, the infrastructure spending did not vary a lot. Leads to the insignificant influence of a mayor on the infrastructure spending. Sure, sure. So health is the is the sector where the mayor does have scope to yeah. engage in discretionary spending. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, for health, a progressive mayor could allocate relatively easily more funding, for example, for health insurance as well as to provide more budgets for public health centers so that the, each public health center can immunize and vaccinate more children, for example. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, those sort of relationships you outlined there between the size of coalitions and, and patterns of spending. I mean, another feature of governance we've seen at local level, unfortunately, has been high levels of corruption. Uh, for instance, we've seen the 
Corruption Eradication Commission last year, I think, announced that it was up to 300 mayors and governors since 2005 who had been made corruption suspects. Do you see any correlation between the size of coalitions supporting a mayor and governor and their prospects of becoming a corruption suspect? I mean, you could imagine they may have spent more on assembling that coalition. They may owe favours to coalition partners and those sort of factors might push a mayor or governor to enter into corruption. Do we see uh, anything of that sort? Based on the list of the 300-something mayors, we could see that those mayors and governors have had different coalition sizes. For example, the most uh, we could see the governor of Banten, Ratu Atut Kosia, that had strong local coalitions, is now jailed for corruption. While at the same time, there is also a number of mayors with who ran independently or with little party coalition that's also committed high corruption crimes. The most significant example is the former mayor of Tomohon in North Sulawesi, Jefferson Drumajar. He was elected, if I'm not mistaken, in 2005 with a collection of small parties and he stole a lot of money from the city budget but was still elected in 2010 while he was under prosecution and now of course he is now jailed for more than 20 years sentence but that's an example that even for a mayor with small coalition size could also commit a corruption so it i i think the coalition size did not have strong correlation with the corruption tendency i mean that's a that's a really fascinating example you highlight there from tomohon with someone who's already being prosecuted for corruption nevertheless winning re-election i guess that raises the broader question i mean i'm asking you there questions about does the coalition supporting a mayor or governor shape the way they govern um, but does it even really, in terms of their prospects of being re-elected for a second term, does it matter at all the ways in which a mayor or governor governs? Or, or is it simply once you're in, you're likely to be able to stay in for, for two terms? Again, there is no clear-cut answer on that. But, but from what we found in our research on incumbency, the second term mayor governs differently than the first term. They usually spend less on education and health while they spend more on infrastructure spending which may be interpreted is that as they finish their terms and couldn't run again they would try to gain more how do you call, more kickbacks maybe from the infra infrastructure projects sure sure and it sounds like it might also suggest that they at least perceive that it does matter how they govern in the, the first term, that they need to provide some benefits uh, yeah. to have a good chance of being re-elected. Because as you know, that education and health are popular with the voters, education and health spending, yeah. How much of an advantage is it to be an incumbent candidate to be running for a second term as mayor or governor? Do they have a much better success rate than challenges to them? Oh, oh yeah, exactly. They have much better success rate for than the challengers because as the data show about two-thirds of the incumbents who won the re-elections well if we look into the their chances based on the number of candidates their chance was only about 30 percent 
does that advantage only apply when the incumbents themselves are running or i mean another feature of elections in indonesia which really gained attention in the 2020 local elections is this idea of dynastic candidates uh, it, it gained attention of course because jokowi president jokowi's son gibran successfully ran to become mayor of Solo, which was the first position that Jokowi himself was elected to back in 2005, with Gibran getting, I think, about 87% of the vote there. You also had Jokowi's son-in-law succeeding in becoming mayor of Medan in Sumatra. Do, do we see a, a substantial advantage for family members of incumbents when they run, or is it really only for the person themselves? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have credible or comprehensive data that could provide a comprehensive picture on these political dynasties. But from what I saw is that yeah, it's, it is a strong advantage, like a significant advantage to be part of the like to be to become a wife or a son or a nephew of a local or national politicians, but. Again, it's not always, it's not the, uh, the deciding factor. For example, in 2020, about half of the dynastic candidates at the district level, at the Kabupaten level, won the election, but only about a third in the city or the urban district won the local election. While it, at the provincial level, only about 25% who won the local election out of the 125 candidates who were part of the political dynasties. But yeah, more research is needed to provide conclusive evidence on, on these political dynasties. Maybe it could be a future research project for you. Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, that's the plan. What I'm planning with uh, to collaborate with an expert on these political dynasties that's finishing the PSD at the North Western University. Okay, that, that, that wouldn't be Yus Kunawas. Yeah, Yus Kunawas, yeah, you're right. Yeah. He's uh, written for the Indonesia at Melbourne blog on the subject of political dynasties recently. So waiting for Adrianus and Yus to, to put out a paper together, I'd, I'd certainly direct listeners to, to go and have a look at Yus's work there. Now, I mean, to change direction a little bit, you know, we've talked a lot about what it takes to win, a le- win an election at local level. You've also highlighted some of the ways that the way you get elected, the sort of coalition you have has shaped differences in health, education, infrastructure, spending that can vary from one term to the next as well. I mean, one of the most prominent areas of local governance, understandably over the past 12 months has been the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, we've seen very different policies from different mayors and governors. We've seen, you know, for instance, a number of governors try to impose various lockdowns in their regions, often opposed by the national government under President Jokowi. Does your research shed any light on the sorts of responses to the COVID-19 pandemic that we'd expect to see from different mayors and governors under under different circumstances? Is, Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, it is very interesting how the local governance affects the COVID-19 pandemic response and there are some aspects on my research that may provide some indications on this. The first one is on the coalition size. 
it is likely that mayors with stronger coalition are more prepared of have a better response to deal with this pandemic because at the governance level this pandemic really disrupts the planning and budgeting cycle so that the annual budget that was passed in early 2020 was no longer relevant a few months after that so mayors really had to reshape the budget so he or she can allocate more funds to deal with the pandemics and without strong support in the parliament level this radical changes on the budget would not happen quickly and so would not be effective anymore so that's the first point and then the second one is that there is an indication that mayors or governors who are strongly associated with the national governing coalition provide smoother response to the pandemic so uh, they don't have strong frictions with the central government policies and basically can work together because this pandemic in my opinion is the first real instance in which the new indonesian government structure was tested since 1999 there's practically no massive crisis like this that requires strong coordination between central provincial and district governments and only local leaders that can and also the national leaders that can align these three local governments and ensure coordination between the three levels of governments can provide better response to the pandemic now finally i mean you you've gone through many features of the ways that these local elections direct local elections for mayors and governors that were introduced in 2005 have shaped local governance of the ways that candidates and parties seek to win those elections i mean from researching all of these patterns are there any changes that you would recommend or see as necessary to indonesia's electoral laws to to change the way that these local elections operate yes and no actually maybe first of all let's take a quick look on the changes since 2005 I think the first and most significant change was in 2008 when there was a introduction of independent candidates and I really hope that these independent candidates can be maintained for the foreseeable future whatever the revision is because it really changes the dynamics of the candidacy a strong candidate who could not secure a party nomination can just select to run as a independent and that also reduce the bargaining position of the of political parties smaller changes during the past 15 years was on the coalition threshold it was 15% in prior to 2008 and then 20% after that yeah i think it didn't have a lot of effects and i hope that it stays the same 20% not bigger because that means there will be smaller numbers of candidates in a local election and then maybe the third areas that i really support is the abolition of the second round or the run of election because as you know that until 2013 if a candidate could not secure 30% it 
the two top candidates had to compete in the run of elections and that was very expensive so yeah it's good that in 2015 they abolished the the run of election and whoever won the first round the the candidate would be elected as a mayor of or a governor except in Jakarta in Jakarta because it's covered by a specific law it still required uh, 50% to be able to to be elected in the first round if not they had to do the run of election as happened in 2017 So there are three aspects that should be maintained, even if the local election law is revised. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying Indonesia's legislative drafters have already made incremental changes to this system of local elections, and you're you're pretty happy with how they're now operating, or or are there some key changes that you'd still like to see made? One aspect that may need to be improved is on the campaign financing, so that at the moment it's not. strictly regulated or there is no effort to strictly regulate it so we could not track the cam- the campaign spending of its candidate and also a more transparency on the on the wealth report or asset report of its candidate you could see that in the general election commission website but it will be good if voters have easier access to that kind of information so that voters are more informed when they cast their votes another one is on the dynasty politics but it's very tricky to regulate this because in on one hand it's good if you provide equal opportunities for everybody but at the same times if you prevent somebody from running for an office just because he or she is related to a national or local politician I think it's also not the right clause. So yeah, you have to find a better way in dealing with the political dynasties. Sure, sure. Now, Adrianos, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for coming on Talking Indonesia today to share your yeah. insight. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity to share my research and thoughts on the Indonesian local politics. And yeah, hopefully I can add more debates on this issue. That was Dr. Adrianos Hendrawan, a recent PhD graduate from the Australian National University, who is currently conducting research with ANU on women's representation in local parliaments. As well as his PhD research, in our conversation Adrianos drew on co-authored research with several other colleagues, including Edward Aspinall, Ward Berenscott, Lane Lewis, and Hugh Nguyen. We'll link to those articles in our episode notes. Talk Indonesia returns on 25 February, with my co-host Dr. Charlotte Satyadi. Keep an eye out also for the episode after that, when our new co-host for 2021, Dr. Anissa Beta from Melbourne School of Culture and Communication, makes her first appearance. Until then, you can find Talk Indonesia at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog and all good podcasting apps. This has been the Talk Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.